Hello and welcome to Fire Science Show, session 51. Last week was the celebrations. It was such a great pleasure to celebrate episode 50. We had a great song. It was really a lot of fun for me. So thank you very much to everyone who participated. And uh, thanks to Matt and Guillermo, especially for their significant contributions. And now we're going back to the normal routine, which is hardcore fire science without dumping it down. For today's episode, I've actually brought a firefighter to the show, fire instructor and someone who's actually quite passionate about fire science as well. Uh, his name is Shimon Kokot. He's a uh, chief officer of Nijica Polish State Fire Service Department. And he's also um, chief of a foundation, CFBT, which is dedicated to training uh, firefighters in Poland. So without a doubt, he's passionate about fire service and helping communities. Shimon also happens to be a doctoral student at the main school of fire service where he's pursuing his PhD on thermal exposures uh, to firefighters. And I think it's a very, very interesting subject. And I'm going to have an episode about that soon-ish. But because of his exposure to fire science, I, I think he quite well grasps the necessity of fire science to firefighters. And that is the first thing we're going to discuss about in today's episode. The second thing is the exposure of fire engineers to firefighters. That is something I don't think we we have enough. I don't think we as fire engineers appreciate the job of a firefighter enough. I don't think we understand completely what they are doing, what they want to achieve, uh, what are their tools and how they use them. So, so I think it's a huge gap to be filled by projects like like this podcast to connect our groups together because together we can achieve much, much more. And if you ever wondered how uh, firefighting operations look, what are the first thoughts in the head of experienced fire officer when you ask them what was happening when they arrived to the spot? You will be surprised. I, I was surprised and it's eye-opening what really they care about and what they seem to not care that much about. And these pressure points are quite different from what I've been taught as a fire safety engineer. So definitely uh, an episode worth listening to the end. I hope you'll enjoy it. And yeah, let's not prolong this anymore. Let's spin the intro and jump into the episode. Welcome to the Fireside Show. My name is Wojciech Wingzinski and I will be your host. Hello, everybody. I'm today with a good friend, Shimon Kokot of the Polish Fire Brigade and CFBT Poland Foundation. Great to have you in the podcast, Shimon. Hi, Wojciech, and it's a real pleasure to be on your podcast. I'm a big fan. And straight, I will say uh-huh. one thing, just you have to you have uh-huh. to leave a five-star review for this podcast because it's <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's not possible to leave like low, lower stars. The software will not take it. <laughs> it's a smart software. Exactly. Thank you, thank you, Shimon. And, <laughs> and we can say yeah, uh, welcome sure. to the podcast again because you had a small appearance in the Water Mist Conference, yeah. which was which was an interesting event, and I, I really enjoyed how you uh, talked about the the firefighter in the room uh, that's already there, meaning the the sprinkler yeah. system. And today, um, you know, I do this podcast for fire engineers, for fire scientists. I hope. 
there's a lot of firefighters and other professionals that deal with, with fire in some way listening to us. And often we as, as fire engineers, we, we do a lot of stuff thinking about firefighters and to, to help firefighters, to assist firefighters to change the environment in which firefighters uh, work. But I think we don't have great appreciation of how that work looks like, what the challenges are, and what, what really means to, to battle fires. I'm quite lucky I did the, the main school fire service in Warsaw as a civilian. However, I was still exposed to a lot of training meant for, for officers. You know, you, you did the same course, but for officers in that school, so, so you know what I mean. But I feel that in many places of the world, the fire engineers would come outside of, of the fire engineering. They would come from mechanical or architectural or, or structural engineering, become a fire engineers. So they have absolutely mm -hmm. no idea how, how the job looks from the from the firefighters' perspective. And first, I wanted to ask you, like, where do you see the biggest gaps in, in communication or, or knowledge? Or is there a quick way we could improve that? Because I, I feel it's a critical component. Well, I'm not sure if there's a quick way, and if there is, I'm not sure I I fully understand and appreciate how it can be done. But like you said, I, I graduated from the main school of fire service, first engineer, then master's engineer. I'm also doing my PhD still under the main school of fire service. It's on thermal radiation. Mm -hmm. So I am, a, I am a fire safety engineer myself, although I understand and I understood from the very beginning that Within this, this specialization, you can also identify a number of, let's say, sub-specializations. So there's yep. command, obviously, there's uh, prevention, there's a lot to, to know about design and, and prevention and so on. So I'm, I'm more on the side of, of command, let's say, of intervention. Still, my understanding is that there is no theory without practice and there isn't a practice without theory. So even if we consider ourselves to be more practical guys in the in the scope of the fire engineering by saying this we automatically devoid ourselves of a very important component which is a solid understanding of the theoretical foundations so many years after graduating i'm still reading books i'm still trying to you know catch up with all the things that are going on in the in the world a great example is what UL or currently Fire Safety Research Institute is doing by providing research that is mm. dedicated for firefighters. Yep. So I think that firefighters basically need to understand that if they want to be really good or best version of themselves as firefighters, fire commanders, they need to really have a very strong theoretical basis, which I suppose is lacking these days. I, I love how you said that there are many fields and command is one, obviously. Because for me, uh, it's not an obvious thing, you know, and I think many fire safety engineers would not, uh, it would not be an immediate choice. You know, the firefighter is this guy with water who comes in and, and sprays water. We don't really mm -hmm. appreciate the diversity, the logistics behind yeah. it, the the knowledge and, and the skills around it. And yet we try to push for solutions that are meant to help in that work. This is exactly what I meant with this lack mm -hmm. of appreciation between our groups. Maybe it's just we don't talk to each other enough. Maybe it's some other reasons I don't necessarily understand why Why would we 
not uh, share uh, engineers to firefighters, firefighters to engineers. I, I th- actually think that mm-hmm. that is critical to to talk with uh, with firefighters. It is. Yeah, it is. I will share with you. There's a saying which maybe you have heard or the audience have heard. Put the wet stuff on the red stuff. It's the display of the philosophy that is often connected to the firefighting, but mm. it's way more complicated than that because the wet stuff being water is is something with cooling capacity. That's what we need to understand. Mm-hmm. And the red stuff is something that produces heat. Now, the heat is dependent on the axis of air or the gas exchange. Yep. The effectiveness of water is basically uh, connected to your proximity to the fire. So if you're closer, you can obviously apply water in a more efficient way. But still, if you want to get closer, you are endangering your people. Mm-hmm. You are committing them into smoke. You have to calculate the time. Then you have something that you flow and you have to supply. So these are measurements or sometimes assessments of your water supply and so on and so on. So it's a complicated world, which uh, in addition has to be played. All this, this whole theat- theater happens mm-hmm. uh, within mm-hmm. seconds very often. And then whatever you decide can dictate the outcome of your entire two, three, four hour um, intervention. So, yeah. It's interesting because when we consider like fire dynamics in compartment or in, in general fire development in a building, usually the moment the firefighters arrive is something like an end of calculations for us because it becomes <laughs> uh, extremely complicated to include this, what you just meant, water sprays and, and ev- everything around. In the eyes of the firefighter, and fire instructor, I think, in, in the first place. Mm-hmm. How do you view the fire science? Or, or from your perspective, does fire science even exist? Is it, is it useful? What is young firefighter reading to learn about this? It's funny you're asking this. Yeah? Currently, he's reading my book. Fantastic. <laughs> Good job. Yeah, I, I, thanks. I wrote a textbook on yeah. structural firefighting for the fire service. It is approved mm. by the national fire chief as a, as a textbook for firefighting. Years before, I worked on, together with international colleagues and best Polish instructors, I worked on the development of the of the curriculum. Mm. So curriculum, then we designed um, training infrastructure, then we produced uh, instructors, and then we produced training materials. Still, there's a, there's some some milestones to to be reached. But how does the science exist? Honestly, after many years, I will say that there isn't firefighting without science. Mm. I mean, because often often it's uh, translated into simple terms, and and. The lower you go in the ranks, obviously you need to make more simple procedures or, or algorithms for people. If this, then that. If you want to be safe, close the door or, or whatever, whatever this kind of, or limit the inflow. Um, then you can complicate the, the idea further. Only a certain uh, level of complication is necessary for understanding, mm-hmm. but it's a very good exercise a very eye-opening exercise and horizon-broadening exercise mm. for the commanders to actually know their science yeah. <laughs> because because it, it governs everything. Yeah, I, I have a very strong opinion that there isn't firefighting without science. It has to, it has to, simply has to be the foundation of even the simplest or most basic firefighting actions. But at the same time, it must be accessible. Like you've said, uh, there are certain uh, levels which would uh, probably come with the 
experience and formal training. Yes. That that you can go deeper and deeper in, into it, with, but doesn't matter. Even the, the, the rookie, a voluntary firefighter should know fire science. It's just, it's the difficult job to, to present that fire science to them in a way they can comprehend given their current experience, knowledge, and let's say uh, formal training status, right? That's the challenge. That is true. So therefore, not everybody can be a good instructor or a good teacher. Uh-huh. That's the first thing. But there's another branch of science or knowledge maybe it's a better word, or maybe it's science, which is called pedagogics. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a science of teaching and there's yeah. a science of learning as well. So, for example, I'm a graduate of pedagogical studies, mm-hmm. uh, occupational health and safety studies, plus I like people. So probably mm-hmm. also that, I'm, that I have the, the gift of the gab, or I talk a lot, or I pour water, as we say in Polish. Mm-hmm. Uh, but instructional design is uh, critical because I can I can give complex books to firefighters and say, you, you know, in two weeks, I'm going to give you a test and you have to pass it to become firefighter. But instead, I, I rather, I prefer to create their interest in firefighting because fire is is a phenomenon that was with, with the humankind ever since we started being a little bit more organized. So we started living in the caves yeah. and, and used fire to quit eating raw meat <laughs> or, or so. That was always something hypnotizing, uh, connected with safety, connected paradoxically uh, with safety of ho- household and with warmth and being close to, let's say, your tribe, sort of. So that's why people are still fascinated in fire and for example, this is one thing that we use in the pedagogics of teaching fire science to uh, recruits. I, I had this issue last year when uh, there was this sad moment where Professor Konecki has passed away in Poland. Uh, he was my PhD supervisor and, mm. and one of my mentors. And he, he was the compartment fire dynamics fantastic guy, person, guy in yeah. Poland. Fantastic, fantastic person. Uh, really, really missing him. But this opened a hole in the, in the curriculum of the university because he was giving compartment fire dynamics and, and he passed suddenly. So the, the course has had to continue and I, I was very honored that I was asked to finish it with the students. And what, what, it, it was just a, sh- a short chapter in my, my career, not an academic, but I, I've met this 100 or 200 young people trying to learn being fire safety engineers. And I, I have a choice. Either I, I drop, uh, you know, hundreds of pages of equations on them, which I uh, mm-hmm. which I possibly could uh, to, to show them the theoretical foundations, or I can just try to explain them how small changes in the compartment change the, the outcomes of the fire and that you can actually, we have tools and models to calculate that. Like you open the door, the pressure plane changes. You put a wind boundary mm-hmm. condition on your window, the flow path changes. You change the size of the compartment, yeah. your temperature will, will change in the compartment. You have compartment big enough, the fire will travel. Things like that. And they, they were fascinated and they re- I seem, it seemed that re- they've really enjoyed this view of science. And it, it was not the dumped down science. Not It's not the case. It was just put in a simpler terms yeah. that, that are digestible and easy to comprehend. And in this form... I thought that they really um, benefit from my course. Obviously, Professor Konecki had the gift mm-hmm. and he was able to do the equations <laughs> together with inspiring. <laughs> and that's something I would eventually one day maybe achieve. I would aspire to that. But but I thought that it is important to do it like that because there was no point to you know push equations into their heads. 
It's interesting that you're saying that because just just a minute ago, I thought about this very sentence, dumbing down. Uh, and this is a sentence that I heard from John McDonough, who is uh, one of the most recognized worldwide instructors of CFBT. Mm-hmm. By the way, I will uh, elaborate on the uh, on the abbreviation of the, yeah. or the acronym in in a few moments as well. And and he used used to say, "Stop dumbing firefighters down." I understand that this is science, but come on, we are people. We are we have mastered civilization. It's amazing, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just just from private life, I took a loan today, and I, <laughs> my, me and my wife we went with our dogs, you know. And I always laugh uh, to the dog. Can you open the door? No, the dog cannot open the door. Can you bring out the trash? No, the dog cannot bring out the trash. Not to mention about recycling. Mm-hmm. No, we are a civilized kind. Yeah. We need to aspire. Not not aspire down. We need to aspire up. I mean, yeah. people are smart. Yeah. Everybody is able to understand the the triangle. You don't need to dump down things. Yeah. Yeah. The triangle of fire or the tetrahedron, as the Americans say, or you, if you mix these elements, there will be fire. Now, this is complex enough. Or this is actually simple, but you don't need to make it more complex for the firefighter who is starting their, let's say, adventure with firefighting and is working on the nozzle. He or she, mm. they need to understand, okay, do not add too much air. Try to be in the safe zone. If you feel the heat, it's probably a little bit too late. So watch the signs because your mm. gear works as a capacitor. It gathers heat. And when you feel it, it's it's a bit too late. I mean, it's yeah. we, now we have too good PPE. So everything is science. I mean, the PPE is so scientific. There's this layer that doesn't burn. There's this layer that does not allow water in while letting your sweat out, you know, as, mm-hmm. as vapor. And there's this layer that just makes you comfortable that can get wet. And there's some resistance mm-hmm. for this HTI uh, or whatever thing from, from the standard that is saying how much resistance there is yeah. uh, against water vapor. It translates into comfort of working, but everything is, is basically advanced material science of fire, science of combustion, science of water, and so on. Hydraulics, the water delivery yeah. to fire, it's science. Bernoulli's equation. Yes. I mean, it's absolutely yeah. basic stuff to understand. Okay, Shimon, let, let's spin the table a, a little bit. All right. So let, let's now try to expose uh, some fire engineers to, to firefighters 101 without dumping it down. And All right. uh, you've once said that whatever people made it will burn down and they don't design it for burning. But yeah. uh, from your perspective, you have to be ready that it will. And exactly, yeah. In the green room, we've chatted a little bit about it. That sometimes, we as engineers, uh, we would uh, stop our calculation and say, "Okay, this is a very improbable fire." But for you, who have to go and then quench it down, it's not a great uh, news that you you have encountered <laughs> a very very rare fire in your life. No, it's on the contrary. It's bad news. I don't have experience. You have to fight it. But I, I really like. Mm-hmm. If you could explain to engineers, like w- what happens when firefighters are, are arrive? Because I think people don't really comprehend that well. Mm-hmm. Let's pick a pick an object, maybe a car park. You like car parks? You love car parks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love them. <laughs> everyone, everyone loves car parks. Uh, underground, multi-level Especially car parks. Especially, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's make it. Actually, let's make it a, a multi-level underground car park. So, so from my from my perspective, when I'm engineering this, I would assume some design fire which grows in the car park. I would uh, design some smoke control systems <clears throat> to create a state of equilibrium inside the car park that 
heat is produced, heat is removed, uh, sometimes to various levels of success in, in making that car park smoke-free. Actually, it's never smoke-free. It's always filled with smoke mm-hmm. to some extent. But 15 minutes into my analysis, I assume some firefighters show up. And for me, the job is done. It's their problem now. And from you, when mm-hmm. you arrive, what's happening? Okay, so going back shortly to the motto, I used to say that nobody designs anything with the intention that it will certainly, without a doubt, be on fire. While we know that anything that humankind has produced will sooner or later be on fire and we will have to intervene. By saying this, I don't mean that everything always catches fire, but there isn't basically, okay, for the prevention officers, surely, but for the intervention firefighters, there isn't a world Mm. of interest outside the reality of, so whatever is designed, manufactured, will be only professionally of interest for us when there's problems with it. So let's say we are the testing community of all the problems, you know, that can be created. I, I must stop you because you brought before you, you didn't answer my car park question, but you gave. I'm getting there. One. I'm getting there. Yeah, it <laughs> will get to a car park. But it, I think you've touched in the meantime, you have touched something really, really good that mm-hmm. for you guys, it's always burning. It's like it you don't get an intervention in a non-burning building. No. For us, uh, yeah. For for us, a, a building that burns is a rare thing and, and low probability even for you, it's Wednesday. That's exactly the thing. And, and I think this is also a reason uh, why in the end, fire engineers and, and firefighters end up having completely different views on mm-hmm. the fire, what fire is, how much money you should save while designing a fire safety in the building. I mean, it's so rare. Yeah. And... But but it also works uh, like on your side. It also skews up the view because for you the fires are common. They are mm-hmm. they are always there in a way. Whereas in in fact yes. statistics show they are rare. Exactly. But in a way because I totally appreciate the work that is being done by fire engineers because otherwise we would be really screwed. And I really appreciate okay. that because if there was no quality control, safety features built in, fail safe mechanisms, and so on. Yeah. Yeah, the world will be a disaster. We would need probably half of the population to be firefighters or some kind of first yeah. responders, you know. So absolutely great respect for all the work that is being done. I think that there is a great need for the communities to work more closely together to understand both both sides. Because it was absolutely enlightening to hear about the risk probability in your previous episodes mm. from different great people whom I admire vastly, like Professor Ezekoye or the, the, the guys who spoke about battery fires, wooden buildings, and so on. I have to admit, I haven't yeah. listened to all of them, but they're on my list. <laughs> You're just producing these uh, episodes too fast. And that's why you really not only deserved, but I demand that you get a five-star review on the <laughs> podcast app from every listener right now. <laughs> that is an order. Yeah. I will Thank remind you. it. I'm that, a deputy that's fire a, that's chief. A, that's a commander way. Okay, let's go to the car. Let's go to the All car right. park. Let's tell, let's so, tell the fire engineers what the firefighter does when they when they get a call that the car park is on fire and it's underground. <clears> we already agreed that. Okay, multi level so, underground car park. So, yeah. so based on experience, there is a PDA predetermined attendance. That's probably mm-hmm. a very British term. Like mm-hmm. a minimum of vehicles and personnel that absolutely has to be dispatched to this kind of event as a minimum first, let's say, serving. 
and then when the commander is on scene, he or she will decide if it's enough or will they need more. Now, this okay. decision is based on uh, multiple factors. If this is a, a building that was in the area for some time, there is an increased chance that they know the layout of the building. If it's uh -huh. a new one, maybe there was just one visit or maybe there was no exercise yet. We have operational planning that envisages going to all major or complex buildings uh, mm -hmm. you know, frequently or at least try to put them on, on the list and, and check them one after another because it's a maze. The problem, like whatever, when I sometimes teach the firefighters in a factory, I tell them the difference. You know what is your advantage? You know the buildings. You know exactly the buildings. So next time you just are walking around, you know, eating your donut, chatting with your mm -hmm. friend, just have a look around. This is your great advantage. When, when we are attending a fire, we basically don't know where we are going. That's one thing. Mm. The second thing uh, we take into consideration, what is the time of the day? If it's uh, evening till morning, mm. the car park is mostly full. If it's the other part of the day, it's mostly empty. So fire load. Fire load, but also the ability or the easiness to travel around it without being disoriented. Mm. Because obviously you have to throw in uh, limited visibility. If it's limited yep. visibility, it's smoke. If it's smoke, it means breathing protection. Breathing protection has limited time. So depending on, also depending on another, let's say science, which is ergonomics, you have to be able to assess. It's not entirely the case of the fire commander because every firefighter has to know this for themselves. How much air they are using? Is it 50, 60, 70, 80 liters per minute based on different types of work? moderate work, heavy work, or so on, or more uh, practically, they have to just read the gauge of their BA pressure frequently mm. enough and be able to communicate. But if we want to communicate, yeah. there's a problem with concrete uh, floors, which blocks the, the signal. So, mm. so there's, there's a number of difficulties. What is the average ability of firefighter to combat fire, be it cool smoke, be it attack the seat of the fire? And if I'm having today an average firefighter, a very good firefighter, or a, a poor firefighter. It's mm -hmm. a, it's a great set of variables. So so there's many like um, levels of constraints you have to take into account. Yes. The uh, time, like you you can send people for a certain mm -hmm. amount of time until uh, their breathing apparatus uh, stops working, and probably you need to secure the logistics, how to yeah. uh, exchange Pull them, them out early enough uh, so that they don't work. Yeah, they don't work on the reserve because it's basically being in the danger zone, working on reserve, yeah. but also being able to send in someone in exchange so that we have a continuous uh, firefighting okay. operation. Then you mentioned commu communication, uh, which also can be blocked by the by the it building can, itself. If it's it can. Then w visibility. Do I have uh, thermal imaging cameras? Now that's a piece okay. of scientific equipment, you know, like reading thermal radiation from emitting objects, which by the way uh -huh. is also, they need to understand this is not a thermometer. This is an assessment. It's... If it's heavy smoke, there's a lot of soot. You will not be able to see through it. Mm -hmm. So your camera is not broken. It's just, it's just basically... <laughs> it's reading what's, what's, what's reading. It's reading yeah. the physics. Yeah. It's just the physics that, that's not really in your favor. And what about uh, water? You, you need water. Mm -hmm. how, how, 
How complicated is water logistics? I know from school it's not easy. <laughs> no, it's not easy. And here I have a great uh, mentor who is Paul Grimwood, who is a fantastic gentleman, a gentleman, and I mean it by saying this, but he dedicated his life to developing science of water. So in his PhD, which he defended probably in 2015, he identified the relation between early applied high flow rates of firefighting water to mm -hmm. limited area destroyed by fire, to limited time of work. That is also mm -hmm. to limited exposure to heat, to limited uh, engine work time, and so on and so on. Basically, if you apply good enough water in the beginning, there's everything gets... It is a, that's also a simplification. Simplification. Everything gets more simple, but mm -hmm. you need to be able to organize it. So first of all, the predetermined attendance, what is the dispatch that you are receiving? But soon enough, you have to understand that whatever you are applying, uh, you need to balance by organizing some form of water supply. In urban areas, that's usually hydrants. And mm -hmm. in most cases, maybe unless there's a really huge problematic fire, they, they should be able to provide you enough of water supply. Or you can call additional resources if you can, because uh, you compare Warsaw When, where there's uh, 17 fire stations plus the school to Nijica, where I serve, was one fire station plus mm -hmm. not so many voluntary fire brigades, which are usually not available entirely during daytime because people are at work. So there's there's huge differences. But also, if, if you don't put enough effort into training of firefighters, their effectiveness of firefighting can be as different as between 10% and 100%, which is tenfold. Mm. Now, if you are interested in any kind of assessment of risk or, or efficiency, a tenfold difference is like worlds apart. Yep. So training is crucial. We have to train people. And again, we really need to feed them with science because otherwise they don't understand why they are doing things. And it's been in, in uh, 1866, I think, that James Braidwood, the first commander of uh, a metropolitan um, fire brigade in Edinburgh, He wrote a book where he explicitly mentioned that he's not only teaching guys what to do and how to do, but first of all, why they are doing this. Because if they understand why, they will find what and how. I, I have another one to go deeper uh, on this conversation on, on the firefighting work during the fire. To what extent the work would be different when the building is, is different? I mean... Let's imagine uh, you, you have a, a taller building, you have a deeper car park. Mm -hmm. uh, we had these conversations, especially related to timber in fire, where we eventually concluded that the building must be, the fire must be put out at some point. And, and yes. we all intuitively think and feel that if you have a two-story building, that's a completely different fire to attend than a fire on the top of, of a 30-story building. Oh, absolutely. And like... To what extent these difficulties for you rise with the increase of complexity of the building? Is it, I don't know, twice harder or 10 times harder if we can... Yeah, uh, it's not easy to, let's say, uh, put it in simple terms like this, but I can elaborate a little bit. Yeah, There's a great uh, friend that I have whose name is John Chubb, and he's a fire officer, operational training fire officer mm. in Dublin, Fire Brigade, Ireland. Probably 36 or seven years of service. Very, very knowledgeable, very experienced, very humble person. A great mentor for me. And, and he's established a fantastic program on, uh, let's say, fighting fires 
in the beginning, let's say the intention was uh, in tall buildings or high-rise buildings, but he sort of broadened it to complex buildings because the buildings does not have to necessarily be tall. It can be huge, have a huge f- floor plan, and it's already a difference. For us, mm-hmm. the time or the effort that we need to dedicate to travel from the arrival spot to the spot where we can start operating, it doesn't have to be up, but up is more difficult because also water doesn't travel up well. Mm. (laughs) If it's far, then we get kinks and bends in the hose lines. This is a pressure loss. Then we end up with less flow. Transportation on on foot of the equipment, which is usually heavy. I mean, modern Mm. firefighting gear is, is 20 plus kilograms and it, while protecting from heat, it also protects you from cooling down by sweating. So there are studies, uh, including uh, ULFSRI, but also with uh, other organizations or, or institutions from US that identified that if you are doing simple things in your turnout gear, you tend to overheat. You don't necessarily have to be in hot gases. It is by minimizing your ability to sweat effectively. Because you're covered with a number of layers of, of your gear. So yeah. if you make this longer before you're actually able to start your firefighting effectively, firefighting operation, that means you get more fatigued. There's an mm-hmm. average saying that if your firefighter travels 18 stories up, they, mm-hmm. they need a major rest because they, before they can undertake any other operation. So perhaps you can translate that to another kind of distance, not necessarily vertical, but but horizontal. Mm-hmm. Or instead of that, you you get a a similar energetic effort by having to carry more weight over lo- shorter distance of time. So by but but basically a couple minutes of strain, let's say, or really intensive physical activity, really devoids you of majority of your. Strength and imagine this is how you feel when you finish like a one kilometer race. And exactly this is when your mm-hmm. task is to enter a burning compartment and rescue people. You know, yeah, this so is when your job starts. You just, you just actually arrived, starts. Yeah. yeah, you just arrived, but then you traveled, you got your ass kicked by the gear that you are <laughs> carrying, and then only then you have to do this. So, another uh, branch of science, which is ergonomics or human physiology, we have to understand as commanders that if we work our people too hard, uh, there will be no no effect, and also it we can create a problem for ourselves where one firefighter is suffering from let's say some kind of health problems uh recently, I had a twisted uh, knee. Yep. The guy was not only not able to help in the intervention but he needed assistance of another firefighter because at that time there were no ambulances uh, available, and from the pain he was losing his consciousness. His mm. uh, oxygen saturation was going down. So not only I didn't have one firefighter, but I didn't have another in mm. my very limited uh, staffing. I did not have another who attended to the first one. And also in the heads of the remaining ones, there was a, a ringing bell. Something happened to our colleague. We are human beings, you know, stress attacks us, uh, yeah. whether we are trained or not. Makes sense uh, what we all intuitively feel that the larger the building, the building, the taller the building, the more capable it should be um, uh, sustaining itself from the fire. Yes. Like. Uh, oh yes. I, I I understand if you if you have a super tall building, like really tall, like two hundred meter tall, mm-hmm. there is very limited stuff you can do in that building. Like 
Okay, if mm. you have a firefighter's elevator, you probably can enter the, the top floor, but still you're limited with the amount of gear you can transport. You're limited uh, to the building supporting you with water. You're limited to the um, building safeguarding your entrance point to a compartment through the ventilated lobby or something. So yes. truly a lot uh, a lot is on the building, you know, to, to survive the fire and uh, not only survive, but also to limit the damage and, and the loss mm-hmm. of casualties. So here so, I go, here I go again to my motto, nobody builds nothing with the certainty it will catch fire. I mean, nobody wants it. That's for me uh, understood, but nobody really thinks about firefighters. We're not a major group of people. So I, I have this uh, very sad and pessimistic saying, we have no allies. Well, actually, we do have a little bit of allies in mm-hmm. the in the construction world. Um, you, you mentioned a very interesting case of a tall building. In tall building, you have to always consider the wind, always, because it's always a factor. In tall building, you have probably greater probability of encountering open plan. So a traveling fire instead of compartment fire starting from one to another. Mm. When you use the elevator, because sometimes you can, you have to account for the piston effect. I mean, it's a vertical shaft going throughout the entire building. If you start moving your, your whatever it's called, like a piston, I, th- I think, you will either suck in the smoke or push out the smoke. So you can only travel a number of floors at the time, like two, three, mm. and see what's going on. So yes, totally. I would prefer if I could blindly trust that the building is going to behave. Well, is it going to behave? I'm not sure. So we always leave a, a margin for, mm. let's say, unexpected, or maybe we should not call unexpected, not according to the scenario. <laughs> we should be expecting anything, even the less probable things. But also the building should not be too complex so that we can, let's say, operate the features of the building. So like heating, ventilation, and then AC systems should not get in our way or should be easily overdriven mm. by the fire commander in the lobby so that we don't get unexpected opening of the of the window behind the firefighters while wind is blowing into the window on the opposite side because then we create the blowtorch effect and so on. <clears throat> so yeah, yeah. I mean, complex buildings are really a challenge for us. Do you think the commander... Now, now let's, you mentioned very complex building. You think the commander is fit to comprehend the building? I, I think there a lot of work has to be done before yeah. the fire. Like if you're a commander, you should know your region, you should know your buildings. I know uh, I am involved in commissioning mm-hmm. buildings. I am there when we are, uh, you know, delivering the end of the fire safety projects. We're starting up the smoke control. We're starting up fire detection. I know how complicated these things are. And even though I were there at the design phase, it takes me quite a good time to you know, get familiar with the particular system design in this building, delivered in this building. It's not, it's not like on off button. It's a complicated control panel with uh, very confusing names mm-hmm. on it. And sometimes the commander may have quite a difficult time. Maybe it's a, it's a thing that we're, where we as engineers could improve instead of designing more fancy systems design systems that are more mm-hmm. approachable, more easy to yeah, operate, well, we, <laughs> easier to understand. That that would be a thing. If you could, that would be wonderful. I, I was not uh, aware that we can have such a fancy <laughs> wish. <laughs> but look, you're asking me if the commander is ready. Well, I can certainly say that the, that the institution has all the features necessary to make it happen, but there's a fluctuation mm. or what's it called? Like, like exchange of personnel 
uh, happening. So there may be probability uh, that mm-hmm. a given commander by chance, by simple fate, is currently on duty when something mm-hmm. major happens and he or she may not be entirely understanding of what's going on and what needs to be done. There's certainly such a possibility. So if we could either connect the worlds and as you say, you commissioned the building, normally you have a prevention officer on site. Rarely on this stage, probably you have operational commanders. If they are there, there's one person or two people or three, while there's a whole battalion of firefighters that actually will engage in firefighting in that building. But then it's on our side, how we, how we create our training and also what we say, maintenance of competencies or, or lifelong education. And, and for us, the fire engineers, like from your perspective, which parts of what we design are the most important, like compartmentation and uh, suppression, detection, ventilation, probably all are important, but yeah. how, how do you view this, these tools? Because we often are you know, <clears throat> yes. burdened with uh, designing this system so they help firefighters. I don't know how they want help, so how can I design that? Yeah, uh, I mean, for us, it would be most beneficial if the, if the okay. building uh, behaved like it should. So compartmentation. By saying this, I do not only mean walls, but also, let's say, windows on upper floors. (laughs) That's one thing. Secondly, because we know that it's not a switch anymore. It's done. We only have synthetic fuels inside buildings. So there's great heat release. But as we know from the Thornton's law, which is over 100 years old, the amount of heat is relative to the oxygen that is provided to the uh, to the combustion process. So we would like to be able to trust entirely, entirely, I mean, like blind trust, blindly trust that the building will behave and also that some of the features that are designed will not cause any surprise. So for example, the HVAC systems will not start opening, you know, the building up. So because what I understand, I mean, my look at the evacuation is currently as such. We will do anything uh, with the building that will aid evacuation, even if it means that the building will be lost. If we rescue all the people mm. but lose the building, it is still a good outcome. Therefore, we will open up a lot in the in the early phase because the, in the early phase is where the people get out. So we w- don't want to obscure mm. their evacuation routes. But for firefighters appearing soon on the scene, it creates another problem. It's a well-ventilated fire. When we start closing it down, the amount of heat that was produced will start creating pyrolysis gases. Which, which will obscure, which will travel, which can, which can cause violent or very dynamic fire phenomena and so on. Well, that's okay. At the cost of uh, saving people, that's okay if we lose the building. Or by the benefit of saving people, we can lose the building. But we would like to, to have the ability of then f- have full entire control over the building. The, the, the problem is that we're also human beings. If the building is, as you mentioned, 200 meters tall, it has like sections, floors, whatever other kind of stuff. Uh, maybe it's sometimes too complex to just grasp it with your mind. And then while keeping in mind the, the air, the water, whatever, wherever your people mm. are committed, what's your communication, you know, the, the press officer is calling. That's, that's not bad. If your fire chief is calling, that's another stressor and so on and so on. You know, the public is, is going, maybe you need to remove the public or the <laughs> glass is starting falling. I mean, all sorts of things can happen. I, I had a fire recently where 
there was a flat tire, there was a twisted ankle, there was lack of ambulances, uh, I couldn't find police to block the road, there was a collision because of that. And I said, oh, oh my goodness, I mean, I feel like in Egypt where there were the, the plagues, you know, first the frogs, then the whatever, <laughs> I don't even remember what they were, but like, it was like epic, epic you know, series of <laughs> mishappenings. And it was a okay. great test for me. <laughs> and it was a great test for me. We rescued uh, people's property. What what burned down was a derelict uh, abandoned building. So I immediately said, I'm surrendering this. We need to switch and go and protect because there was the, the wind was blowing really, really like sideways. If there was rain, it would be falling, not vertically, but horizontally. There was such a wind. And the grass was uh, dry and uh, was a p- very poorly maintained area with mm. lots of wild, um, wild, dry vegetation, some some heaps of trash and so on. And then immediately after, there was residential buildings which were which were threatened by the fire. So yeah. Hey, Shimon, uh, it's it's sad, but we have to wrap it up. All right. So maybe you have some sort of a message to the fire engineers and from a firefighter like. How can we best help you? Or maybe you have a message to firefighters to to learn more fire science. What do you choose? <laughs> oh, yeah, I just made the two points. I will, I would love to be able to very briefly touch on them. One is that yep. we are called CFBT, which was historically because of the English term that was used for firefighters teaching other firefighters how to fight fire. It's, it was called compartment fire behavior training. We recently started calling ourselves CFBT, but critical fire behavior training. There's a lot more to learn about fire than just a compartment. So to my firefighters, every firefighter, my message is do not limit your point of view to a compartment. A fire is a way more complex phenomena or undertaking that you would uh, be encountered with. And second thing is, I was, I am, I was, I was part of the events. I, I feel like a part of this group, which is called IFIW, the International Fire Instructors Workshop. It was started mm-hmm. by Stefan Svensson, uh, Professor Svensson, whom I admire greatly, and I have the great privilege to call him my friend. And, and he decided in 2008 that he will bring together scientists and practitioners. And out of that, there was created a great, uh, great, let's say, movement of firefighters wanting to know more about science and scientists wanting to know more about practice. We had Steve Kerber attending Ed Hartin, Paul Greenwood, Sean Raphael, John McDonough, Michael Reich, the creator of The Smoke Curtain. He's a great guy uh, to invite to your podcast. He's a, mm-hmm. he's a PhD on, you know, fire science, and he's the creator of the portable device used by firefighters. And I would love to see more discussion between the two sides, because actually the reality is in the middle. It's on neither yeah. sides. And if, mm, yeah, basically this, there was another thought, but I really talked too much, so. I I think we need to understand how to help firefighters. And we're also in this difficult place where many of our decisions uh, must be communicated to stakeholders. Like eventually someone has to pay for them Mm -hmm. for all the solutions. So understanding how we help firefighters and or or how our business affects your business, which is our business too. It it helps us, you know, uh, be a... Advocate for 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 some things that that can really um, uh, help build safety and and mm-hmm. I think this this mutual understanding is beneficial p- to both parties and is essential to eventually have something we could call a fire safe world and uh, yeah. 
I hope we can achieve that one day. Yeah, and Wojciech, there's a great example of you and me working together because you're yeah. opening a possibility for me to join your your research and, and conduct some of my own experiments for my own PhD. My concern is firefighter safety, the effect of thermal radiation on firefighters, which I'm sincerely hoping to achieve this year <laughs> with your mm. tremendous help, critical help. Um, because you're providing me with the, the possibility of doing this in your facilities. So I think this is this is the way to go. And for every firefighter, if they want to really develop as a professional, uh, sooner or later, they have to engage in the vast ocean of, of scientific knowledge. There's, there isn't another way. And we're very happy to learn from you about the compartment fires and, and corridor firefighting tactics, which will greatly enhance our experiments. That's a great synergy. And Let's actually, do it. Uh, once yeah. once it's done, you'll you'll be back here in this seat, and we'll talk it over All right. in, the, in the podcast as well. All right. Shimon, thank you very much for your time. Keep doing what you're doing; it's great and much appreciated. And thanks, thanks, Wojciech. This is a great honor for me. I really enjoy being here after all these great minds, and probably also before these great minds. And I will just say one more thing: uh, five star review, please. <laughs> Thanks, man. You, yeah, you're sure. amazing. I, I, I need to get you more in here. Yeah. You're really good in this. Yeah, well, provided <laughs> if it works, I'm happy to, to be there often, you know? Okay, thanks. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks, man. Cheers. And that's it. Thank you, Shimon. I hope you also left a five-star review. Man, it's, it's so funny when your guests do their job for you and it's kind of awkward sometimes to do this call for action. So yeah, I appreciate that Shimon did it thrice. I expect a tsunami of five-star reviews for the podcast after this episode airs. Regardless, I hope this was interesting to you. I hope it was eye-opening to you. Have you figured out what are his first thoughts? Command, air supply, ergonomics. How far can one walk? This is something I've never really thought when designing building. It, it was not just things that would occupy my mind. I mean, we're not thought that. And, and I think it's important to know. It's not that we can design the building so they have lesser distances for walking or that we provide them breathing apparatus on the side. It's not the point. The point is, it truly is that challenge is exponentially higher when the building is large. That's the second thing. Did you notice? He didn't say tall. He said large. It does not matter if the building is not very tall when, when horizontal distances are so vast. And that, that's another thing. You know, we regulate usually based on the number of floors or the height of the building. And for some certain heights, we don't care that much. For some heights, we do care a lot. And then we, we have this landscaper type of buildings which are generally huge complex mazes in which operations will be difficult. I think this ramp up of difficulty is something we really need to consider when designing safety of the building. There's no way around that. And thank you, Shimon. That was very refreshing to me. And I hope we can go further with that because I think we're on a great path to create a sustainable world of communication between firefighters and fire engineers. And I would really like this podcast to become a venue where such a communication can safely occur. And I think that's it for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. And like Shimon said, a five-star review. He's a commander, you know, don't, don't mess with him. But nah, no, don't, don't worry. I appreciate you all for just listening and being here with me every week. And uh, 
I hope to see you here next week, another Wednesday, another great episode. See you there. Cheers. This was the Fire Science Show. Thank you for listening and see you soon.